that was behind this pulpit. But many of you know, if you don't know, Sister Buford and I, when we got married, we evangelized for three and a half years. In fact, I told the hyphen class that before, or, or if when they get married, they need to go live the first three years of their life in a 34-foot travel trailer. Because if you can still love each other after living where you can only get about 32 feet away from each other at all times, you will make it. But in 2008, or 2004, 2003, they wanted us to come in December and preach for them. And so we did, and we just didn't leave for a while. And we were there with the Jordans in Toledo, Ohio, First Apostolic Church, for four years of our life. And I have a pastor. Brother Graham is my pastor. And, that, and that's because my majority of my life, I grew up in the leadership of Brother Tim Dugas. And when Brother Dugas passed away, Brother Graham became pastor. And Brother Graham's my pastor. But I, I would say other than my dad and Brother Graham in a pastoral role, there's nobody greater that has an influence on Sister Buford and I life than the Jordans. And I told him today publicly or privately, I'm going to say it publicly, that there are many times as I pastor, I look back and I see the fingerprints of Brother and Sister Jordan on my life. And I have asked myself many times, what would Brother Jordan do in this situation? And uh, we're blessed for them to be here they, they have, their, their ministry is so diverse. They have uh, been superintendents. They've preached all across this country. He's a prolific author. Brother Jordan, I want you to come and preach the word of God to this congregation. Can we give them a warm lighthouse welcome in Jesus' name? I can call you Brandon. <laughs> I'm the only one that can do that, except maybe his wife and his mom and dad. <laughs> but it's great to be here at Lighthouse Church. And uh, my, my, what a tremendous crowd that's here. Uh, I think I saw a number on the board in your office that said your first service as pastor was 25. And uh, there's a lot more than 25 here. You are blessed to have Brother and Sister uh, Brandon Buford here as your pastor and wife. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Uh, the uh, good news is, the bad news is I have 89% life on my battery on my iPad today. But I won't run it down to zero, I promise. But I am very honored to be here and also to see a number of ministers here, not only brother and sister P.D. Buford, and of course I worked with him on the Board of Publication and and uh, this is Jane Buford uh, and my wife worked together for a number of years on the uh, General Ladies uh, Committee. And so uh, we're grateful for that relationship. And uh, some others that are here today, I uh, saw Brother and Sister Sponsler. And uh, also, is that Brother Harpole I see out there? Yes. Uh, and uh, some others, I'm sure. But uh, God bless every one of you. We're glad you're here to uh, add 
what you can and what you have to this assembly. Amen. And I noticed that uh, Brother Buford asked or mentioned that I did not preach in this church. Um, I didn't preach in this building, but I did preach to this church. Uh, because the church is not a building. When we say that church down the road or, uh, or we just passed a church, you don't really mean that. You mean the place where the church worshiped because the church is bigger than any building. The church is bigger than any place, any geographical location. I'm glad I'm a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anywhere in the world I go, I'm part of the church. Amen, amen. Well, I want to get right into what I have to say to you this morning. I will say this, that my ministry has changed over the years. Uh, I used to preach like a house of fire. But the fire department of old age has, uh, has pulled up to the curb and doused a lot of those flames. And now I'm happy if I can preach to a a warm house, uh, but I will do my best not to bore you to tears, but uh, to help you. And I do want to preach uh, in a little different style today, and I hope that you can understand that and, and receive that. Uh, I'm not going to be a Stan Cook. Uh, he's, uh, he's a great preacher, but I'm not going to be in that mode today. This will be a little bit different. I'd like to begin with a story. And so you need to pretend that you're all kindergartners or first graders sitting down on the floor listening to the teacher read a story. Do you, how many remember those days? It's entitled, Who Am I? And it, the story goes like this. I was born in 1725 and I died in 1807. The only godly influence in my life was my mother, whom I had for only seven years. When she died, my father remarried, sent me to a strict military school. I rebelled and ran away at the age of 10. A year later, I renounced school forever and became a seaman apprentice. I hoped to step into my father's trade and learn to navigate a ship. Gradually, I gave myself over to the devil, and I determined that I would sin to my fill without restraint now that the righteous lamp of my life had gone out. I did that until I entered the military service where discipline kept me in check. Still, I rebelled. My spirit would not break, and I became increasingly more and more a rebel. I despised so many things in the military that I finally deserted only to be captured and beaten publicly several times. After enduring the punishment, I again fled. I entertained thoughts of suicide on my way to Africa the place I could get farthest away from anyone that knew me. And again, I made a pact with the devil to live for him. Somehow, through a process of events, I met a Portuguese slave trader and lived in his home. His wife hated me. She beat me and made me eat like a dog on the floor of the home. If I refused, she would whip me with a lash. I fled penniless with only the clothes on my back to the shoreline of Africa where I built a fire and attracted a ship that was passing by. The skipper was surprised to learn that I was a skilled navigator. 
I lived on board for a long period of time. It was a slave ship, and it was not uncommon for as many as 600 Africans to be in the hold of the ship being taken to America. I went through all sorts of narrow escapes with death only a hair's breadth away on a number of occasions. One time I opened some crates of rum and got everybody on the crew drunk. The skipper, incensed with my actions, beat me, threw me down below, and I lived on stale bread and sour vegetables for weeks. He brought me above to beat me again, and I fell overboard. I couldn't swim, so he harpooned me to get me back on the ship. I lived with a scar in my side, big enough for me to put my fist into until the day of my death. On board, I was inflamed with fever. I was enraged with humiliation. A storm broke out, and I wound up again in the hold of the ship to keep the ship afloat. I worked alone as a servant of the slaves. There, bruised and confused, bleeding, diseased, I was the epitome of the degenerate man. Remembering the words of my mother, I cried out to God, calling upon his grace and mercy to deliver me. The only glimmer of light I found was a crack in the ship in the floor above me, and I looked up to it and screamed for help. God heard me. 31 years passed. I married my childhood sweetheart. I entered the ministry in every place that I served. Rooms had to be added to the building to handle the crowds that came to hear the gospel that was presented, the story of God's grace in my life. My tombstone above my head reads, Born 1725, died 1807, a clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he once long labored to destroy. I decided before my death to put my life story in verse, and that has become this song. My name, John Newton, the song, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. Knowing this story, the words to the beloved hymn become much more meaningful. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Titus 2, 11 through 13 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, when a person works an eight-hour day and receives a day's a fair day's pay for his time. That's called a wage. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, that is a prize. When a person 
receives appropriate recognition for his long service or high achievements, that is an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage and can win no prize and deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, that is a picture of God's unmerited favor. This is what we mean when we talk about the grace of God. Amazing grace. Grace, G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, the one commodity that allows God to be what his holiness would never let him be. It is the spiritual golden gate between man's sin and God's goodness. It's the horizon that melds the infinite sky to the finite earth. It's the impossible juncture between the irresistible force and the immovable object. It is the mystery of godliness, the magnificent obsession, the triumph of life over death. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Amazing grace. Grace equals God's unmerited favor. Salvation is nothing less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself because the very name Jesus means Jehovah has become our salvation. And so Isaiah writes, I therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. It literally means with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of Jesus. And this grace hath appeared to all men. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And another translation says, the grace of God hath been made to shine from above. The meaning of this phrase hath appeared to all men is the same as the saying in the song of Simeon, mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all the people. And so we understand the grace of God was embodied in Jesus Christ, the brightness of the Father's glory, the manifested Son of righteousness and the Word made flesh. When you see Jesus Christ, you see the personification of grace. And so the old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Astonishing. Astounding. Remarkable. Wonderful. Magnificent, breathtaking, incredible, startling, surprising, shocking, beyond belief, marvelous, marvelous, miraculous grace, 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 God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace could have stood by itself. But whatever God does, he multiplies its effect. And so we read in John 1, the word was made flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full, full of grace and truth, not just a token, not just rationed out, not just enough to detect it. No, he is full of grace and truth. And John bare witness of him and cried saying, this is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. Grace is amazing in its fullness. When Satan went before Job, uh, for God rather, in Job chapter 2, we read this. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man hath will he give for his life. Skin for skin is skin after skin, even all that a man, man has. And so when we say grace for grace, it's grace after grace. It's the abundance of grace. It's grace upon grace. It's one grace heaped upon another grace. It is blessing poured out so that there will not be room enough to receive it. It is extreme redemption. It's one grace is a pledge of more grace. Fullness of grace. And then grace is amazing in its promises. In the Old Testament, we often find mercy and truth put together. That is, mercy according to promise. So grace and truth speak of grace according to promise. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56 says, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he hath promised. There hath not failed one word of his good promise which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. And so grace is represented in the promises of God. And finally, grace is amazing in its person. Grace is the substance of all the Old Testament types and shadows. There was something of grace in the ordinances that were given to Israel. There was something of the grace in the providences granted to Israel. The very best blessings of God that he heaped upon Israel were only shadows of the good things that were to come to the church. You see, they had the law but we have grace revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true paschal lamb, the true scapegoat, the true manna. They had grace in the picture, but we have grace in the person. Jesus Christ is everything that we need in grace and in mercy. It's all in him, amazing grace. I submit to you this morning, this afternoon now, that this grace is far more amazing than we imagined. This grace strips the judge's robe and the gavel off of every one of us. It turns our pride and our arrogance inside out. This grace makes all of our righteousnesses as filthy rags. And so we have no right to criticize any 
recipient of God's grace. We have no justification to deny God's grace to anyone that seeks it. We have no power to take away God's grace from anyone who gets it. Because every every minister is charged with preaching and teaching the word of God, but also of the stewardship of the grace of God. 1 Peter 4.10 is every man that received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so I am not doing my job when I simply preach to you uh, doctrine or I simply preach to you the elements uh, of uh, the Bible in uh, the Gospels and in the Epistles and the Prophecies. I am not doing my job when I just simply have counsel with you on how to be a better person or a better Christian because my job is also to be a steward of the grace of God. I am to dispense grace to everyone I see. I am to dispense grace to the community in where I live, to the neighborhood where I live, to every person that I meet on the street. It is my job to dispense grace to them. Grace is our only claim to salvation. I'm preaching to apostolics. I know where I am. I'm preaching to people who believe in Acts 2.38. But I want you to understand this, that grace is our only claim to salvation. You see, I believe for my salvation. Well, grace does not come by believing. Believing comes by grace. Grace does not come by repentance. Repentance comes by grace. Grace does not come by baptism. Baptism and remission of sins come by grace. Grace does not come by receiving the Spirit. The Spirit, receiving of the Spirit of the Holy Ghost in our lives comes to us by grace. That's what Paul meant when he wrote to the Ephesians, and you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation or behavior in time past of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. It is grace that is at the bottom. It's the grace that is the foundation of everything that we believe, everything we have. It's grace that made him love us. It's grace that made him reach into this decaying, rotting flesh. It's grace that made him inject the same resurrecting power into us that raised him from the dead. Grace preaches itself. By grace are you saved. But salvation is not the end of grace revelations. Where else is this amazing grace taking us? Verse 6 of that same chapter. And have raised us up together 
and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Can you imagine that? Grace is not only for our past, and grace is not only for our present. Grace is for our future. We're going to find more and more about the grace of God as we enter into eternity, that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Grace is going to take us by the hand and lead us to a high mountain and show us even more grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We think of heaven as a place of just vast, untold wealth. We, we think of streets of gold and walls of jasper and gates of pearl. But if heaven had a vault where God kept his greatest riches, you wouldn't find gold bars there. You wouldn't find diamonds or rubies or platinum or silver. You would find stacks and stacks of mercy and grace because in Micah it says that God delights in his mercy. God is rich in mercy and exceeding rich in his grace. God is not counting his gold. He's counting his redeemed. Grace may be wonderful, but it does not lead us to wonder. It's real. It's measurable. It's evident. Acts 11, it's surprising how it displays grace to us. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then have God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Then the tidings of these things came into the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all with purpose of heart that they would cleave unto the Lord. You see, when you see someone at this altar repenting of their sins, you are seeing God's grace in action. When you see a soul baptized in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, you are seeing God's grace at work. When you see God fill someone with the Holy Ghost and they begin to speak with other tongues, you are seeing the action of the grace of God. It's something you can see, you can feel, you can grasp. Not only that, but grace is a place. Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we also have access by faith into this grace wherein ye stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, the grace wherein we stand. You see, grace is a place. Grace is a location in the state of things, in the mind and the heart of God. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is a refuge from sin. We cannot drag grace to places that would subvert its purpose. If we want grace, we have to come to grace. 
We need grace, but grace doesn't need us. And so we need to come to grace. And we need to stay in grace. And we need to live in grace. And we need to walk in grace because that's where we have refuge. Because grace is not weak. It teaches aggressively. It teaches effectively. Titus 2, I read this to you at the beginning. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So grace has boundaries. It has principles. It has standards. Grace loves righteousness and godliness and temperance. Grace knows how to say no to sin. Grace despises sin even as it loves the sinner. Grace leads us ever always along the path of protected uh, walk with God. Grace is not a laissez-faire, do what, uh, well, your own way, whatever, that kind of an option. No, grace teaches us. It guides us. It coaches us. It influences us in every aspect of our lives. Grace is the shadowing response of God to the sinfulness of this world. I think you understand as well as I do how far this world has gone into depravity and in, uh, in sin that is beyond uh, our ability even to comprehend. Most of you have been affected by the sinfulness of this world, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Just when you think that things are kind of turning around, then some new uh, eruption takes place that lets us know this world is not getting better. It is getting worse. And so Romans 5th chapter says, Moreover, the law entered, the offense might abound, but where sin abounded... We're living in a sinful world, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through the righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So I'm asking you today, I know you've been affected by sin. Maybe even your relatives, maybe your, uh, your sons or daughters or grandchildren, maybe uh, uh, people that you know and have been close to uh, have been affected uh, by sin and you have been uh, uh, under the, the pall uh, of their disobedience uh, and their debauchery uh, but uh, the question is this what are you going to do about it what are you going to do about the sinfulness of the world what about all this perversion and the violence and the infidelity what about all the blasphemy and the idolatry and the lust and the pride don't despair because you're the church and we're going to respond with grace. We're not going to despair at sin. We're going to rejoice in the Savior. It's always grace that is greater. Grace that is greater regardless of what you may be facing in your life. Regardless of what the people that you love the most, have, how they have hurt you and have undermined you and have turned their back on you and all of your teaching and your righteousness. Do not despair. You need to reach out with grace. With grace, with grace. That's what they need. 
There are those here today that you're no longer in need of saving grace. You, you are saved. You've been in the church for perhaps many years. But you're hurting. Life has dealt you some terrible blows. And there are things that have happened that cause you to bend low with heavy burdens. I want you to understand that you are not beyond the influence of grace because grace is the last resort for the hurting and the helpless. Paul's testimony is this, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. But Lord, I've, I've served you for years. I've been around this for a long time. And I, I'm not just a, a, a novice. I'm not just a Johnny come lately. I've been embroiled in this. I've been enmeshed in this for a long time. I know all about it. I've heard all the teaching. But right now I'm really hurting. And I don't know what to do. My grace is sufficient for thee, even in your latter days. Even in your hurting and your helpless moments, my grace is sufficient. Most gladly, therefore, I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We talk about the heroes of faith, and well, we should. But let's not forget the recipients of grace who make God the hero. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Joseph found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Moses found grace in the eyes of the sight of the Lord. A remnant of the Jews found grace in the sight of the Lord. These are all scriptural proclamations. The lowly received grace from the Lord. The humble received grace from the Lord. Paul received grace from the Lord. And all of these uh, that I've listed were people expected to be on the list. There's a name, however, that no one would expect to make the list of the recipients of grace. His name was Lot. Yet in Genesis 19, 19, the Bible says, Lot found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Foolish, materialistic, proud, permissive, self-justifying lot. He reeked with sin. But you see, grace doesn't find you on the mountaintop. Grace finds you in the valley. Grace finds you when you're not at your best. Grace finds you at your worst. God knows when you knelt before him and basically said, God, you are so cruel. God, you have disappointed me. God, I don't know how you say you love me when you let this happen to me. God saw you in your darkest hour when you complained bitterly 
against him. He saw you when you were that close to blaspheming him. God saw you when you almost denied ever knowing him. And he didn't turn his back on you. He found you in that low state of mind and heart at your worst. And he said, my child, my grace is sufficient for you. Even in the depths of your despair, my grace is there for you. Come and drink of my grace. Don't brag about your goodness. Brag about God's grace. Don't tell us how deserving you are. Tell us how deserving he is of your worship and of exalting him. Don't build yourself up. Build up this giver of grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Let's stand together. I want to read you another story. This is from Max Licato, and he says, he calls this, they call him the Savior. It goes like this learning to leave or longing to leave her poor Brazilian neighborhood, Christina wanted to see the world. Discontent with a home, having only a pallet on the floor a wash basin and a wood-burning stove. She dreamed of a better life in the city. One morning, she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart, knowing what life on the streets would be like. For her young, attractive daughter, Maria, Christina's mother, hurriedly packed up to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, Maria entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, and spent all she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew that Christina had no way of earning money she also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, taverns, hotels, nightclubs, any place with a reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She went to them all. At each place, she left her picture taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth. On the back of each photo, she wrote a little note. It wasn't long before both the money and the pictures ran out and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village she had not found Christina. 
It was a few weeks. A little bit later, that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she longed to trade those countless beds for her secure little pallet. Yet the village was in too many ways too far away. She reached the bottom of the stairs. Her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again. There on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened. She walked across the room and removed that small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you've done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. Today, I don't know what your background is. I don't know what you're going through right now. You may be in the midst of an ordeal. You might be in the middle of a trial that's testing everything within you. But today, if you reach out, you can grasp something that you haven't really comprehended before. You can reach something that has seemingly been uh, difficult, if not impossible, for you to understand. It's the grace of God. You have access to his grace. You can come boldly before the throne of God. You can reach out to him who said, I love you, and I am here for you, and I will lift you up, and I will lead you out, and I will set you up beside myself and into my throne. That's the kind of God and that's the kind of grace that you have access to this morning. And whatever it is, if it's for you, it's for some, if it's for someone else, if it's for uh, just a, a, a motivation that you have to reach out to the world, a burden for the lost, I want you to make your way up here this morning, uh, this afternoon, and I want you to say, God, I want that grace. I need that grace for my own heart. I need that grace for the people that I'm trying to reach. I need to be able to tell them. I need to be able to convey to them the reality of this grace, that they can be saved, that they do have the love of God in their lives, and they can reach it, even though right now it seems to be so far away impossible to grasp. Come on, my friend. Come on and say, God, I need you. I need your help. I need your your mercy and your grace at this stage of my life. Let God do something powerful in your life this morning. As the praise team sings, I wonder if you'd respond to this invitation because God is waiting on you. He doesn't have any preconditions. He doesn't say, 
Hallelujah. You have to be good enough. Or you have to have enough faith. Or you have to do this or that. No, he's just simply saying, come, come, and I will give you rest. Come on, my friend. Praise God. Praise God.